Is it too late to buy Bitcoin? How is it reacting to TradeFi events and the metaverse? What's next? Welcome to Word on the Block, the series that takes a deeper dive into blockchain and all the emerging technologies that shape our world at the intersection of business, politics, and economy. It's what we cover right here on Forecast News. I'm Editor-in-Chief Angie Lau. While inflation is knocking on the doors of the global economy, the U.S. Consumer Price Index rose by the fastest annual pace in nearly 40 years. Now, Bitcoin is taking on the perception that it's a safe haven asset or hedge against inflation, but it's kind of been acting strange lately. Seemingly, its prices have been reacting to traditional market events. So has Bitcoin grown too fast to live up to its safe haven standards? How will its 21 million total supply measure up against the reality of inflation? 21 million, or as my next guest's Twitter profile measures, 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis. He is the founder, CEO, and CIO of $2 billion hedge fund, Morgan Creek Capital, co-founder and partner at Morgan Creek Digital Bitcoin Bull, Mark Yusko. Mark, welcome to the show. Oh, Angie, great to be with you and, and appreciate the kind introduction and, and really excited to talk to you today given all that's going on in, in the crypto world. Yeah, what is going on? I mean, I, I blink and uh, it's almost as if, uh, you know, everything that we thought was standard, was the trend, was the trajectory gets flipped upside down. But that is our space. That's our space, Mark. What's going on right now in, in your view? Yeah, well, I think we have a little... Uh, challenge between the the cyclical and the secular, right? All the things you mentioned in in the opening are are fundamentally true, uh, secularly, mm -hmm. right? We are in a a secular trend of movement from one safe haven asset, gold, to a new safe haven asset, Bitcoin, and that doesn't mean gold goes away. It it actually does have some properties like physical coinage and jewelry and things like that, that, that will always be there. Um, but for the monetary uses of gold, I really do think Bitcoin is better. Um, part of it is it's just lighter weight, right? All the gold in the world <laughs> takes two Olympic-sized swimming pools. It's really heavy. All the Bitcoin in the world fits right here. I don't actually have all the Bitcoin in the world on that phone. In fact, I don't keep any on my phone because I've been SIM swapped. But uh, the reality is that it's very divisible. I said down to 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis. And you take a bar of gold and you and I want to split it. It's just really hard to get it exactly cut in half. Um, so uh, I think that's the secular move. But then we have the cyclical. Mm -hmm. And the cyclical follows this four-year cycle around the halving events. And you know, one of the things that I, I really love about Satoshi, whoever he, she, they actually are, is just the elegance of their design. You know, everything from the, the 21 million cap to the way mining works to secure the network, the way it's designed to actually prevent a 51% attack from ever happening. Because the moment you stole something, it would immediately go to zero and you'd have no value of what you spent all the money to steal. So just so much elegance. But the halving cycle might take the cake. So if you think about it, if you're a miner, which basically means you just run a data center to secure the Bitcoin blockchain and you buy computers, plug them in, rent that computing power to an algorithm and get paid block rewards to do so, um, 
And if you think about that, if the block reward gets cut in half, mm-hmm. your input cost, electricity, doesn't change. Either you're going to go out of business or the price needs to rise to equilibrate the system. And so there's this in this built-in price increase over the long term. Well, what price movement does is it attracts us hunter-gatherers. Now, this is a male-female thing. So like if my wife says, go find the ketchup, I open the refrigerator door, there's no ketchup. I can't see it because it's not moving. If it were moving, I could see it. But that's just the nature of of us hunter-gatherers. And so price movement tends to bring speculators. And the speculators then drive the price higher. And and then we get these periods where it can be above fair value, below fair value. Uh, And I think that's what we're seeing now is – it should be no surprise to anyone that over the past year, Bitcoin's up a lot, right? Well over 100% because the central banks around the world printed too much money, mm-hmm. right? The U.S. Central Bank, the Fed, printed, I love the stat, 40% of all the dollars in the history of the republic, 255 years, came into being in the last 18 months. So it shouldn't be shocking that the price of an asset denominated in Bitcoin, I mean, in dollars, rose. And this is the part that I think a lot of people forget, right? One Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. And it will always be one Bitcoin. Yep. But you and I don't buy Bitcoin in Bitcoin. We buy it in something else. We buy it, we buy it in, in dollars. dollars. We buy it in yen. Right. We buy it in euros. And so if we look at the price of Bitcoin in dollars... It's materially higher today than it was at the beginning of the year. It's materially higher than it was a year ago or two years ago or 10 years ago or at the inception. And that's not necessarily because Bitcoin got better. It did become more broadly adopted. But more importantly, the dollar continues to get worse or the yen continues to get worse or the euro continues to get worse. And that global race to the bottom is the secular trend that's going to push prices higher along with these halving cycles. This is a long answer to your simple question, but it's a really insightful question. The reason we're seeing this cyclical pressure, I believe, is because uh, of the release of the uh, futures-based ETF. So all these companies bid to to start an ETF, and you could have a spot ETF, or is it actually increased demand for Bitcoin itself? Or uh, they're not going to approve that anytime soon. <laughs> What they did approve was a futures-based ETF. Well, a futures-based ETF doesn't actually change the demand for Bitcoin. All it does is allow me to create a paper version of Bitcoin, which is completely independent of the 21 million supply. Uh, Well, 19 million today, 21 million someday. Uh, And that contract then allows someone to go short on the other side. So we've seen this movie before, 2017. You know, Bitcoin peaked right around 20,000 on December 18th. That was the day the CME launched Bitcoin futures. Not shockingly, a bunch of people started shorting. Price went down a lot over the next year and a half, the bear part of the cycle. This time, within days of the peak at 68,000, uh, uh, a couple of days before, was the issuance of BITO. And I believe a bunch of banks and others have gotten short on the other side and they're they're pushing the price down a little bit. So that's the cyclical versus secular. 
So they're pushing the price down a little bit right now. Uh, and that's the US version of that play, the futures Bitcoin ETF. You take a look more globally, you even look to the neighbor to the north and you have uh, Bitcoin ETFs uh, that are in market. You have um, uh, Bitcoin ETFs and other uh, financial instruments that are popping up yep. around the world. Uh, you know, how does this bring in more of that network effect we always talk about, that liquidity that is underpinning some of the rise that we're seeing in the activity, especially this year? It's just, it's been in a- Yeah, again, really yet. important question, Angie. If you think about, you know, Switzerland, for example, a um, company that we actually are investors in, uh, Amun, or 21 shares, uh, they have- uh, actual spot-based uh, ETFs. And so that is increasing demand for Bitcoin as money flows into that ETF. Canada has that as well. There's one about to launch in Australia. That's positive for the ecosystem. That increases demand for physical Bitcoin. It increases participation. It, it increases that network effect. And it, and it gives us rise to that Metcalfe's Law parabolic curve that we've all seen where the, the value of the network rises uh, proportionally to the square of the number of, of participants in the network. But it's such a globalized world. Again, American exceptionalism, we think we drive everything in the world in Bitcoin, but we're really like 20-ish, 25% of the market. And there's still activity in all these big markets around the world including China. And so, oh, but China banned Bitcoin. Well, yes and no. I mean, yes, they did, but there's still some very large exchanges that operate um, at, a, at a Chinese jurisdiction. Actually, they got kicked out of China's jurisdictions, but they were started by Chinese nationals and they have this global footprint. And some of them allow investors to, how should I say, take imprudent amounts of leverage. I believe it's imprudent. And a week ago Saturday, we saw that, right? That was the day after the options expiration on Friday. Futures contracts were rolling. And we had that three or four hour, 20% drop on, set on uh, late Saturday night, early Sunday morning. Um, and for those watching, and what for those watching at some point in the future, we are speaking on December 13th, 2021. So just for a publication. Oh, thank you. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. We got it. We got it. We got it. So uh, it was that, you know, November roll yeah. uh, of the futures and, and options expiration in, in November. And so what, what happened here is is interesting in that um, there are a whole bunch of people who had accounts that were heavily levered and pricing them down a little bit. And they got a margin call, couldn't make it, got liquidated. And over a million accounts got liquidated. And I think that is a countervailing problem to the long-term trend that we all want to embrace, right? Bitcoin to me is, is all about the next billion, right? We have 200 million-ish people worldwide that, that uh, use it uh, and believe in it. And we need the next billion to come in and, and use it. Now, that's only going to happen when the UX is improved when the technology itself becomes kind of invisible, like you and I are using voice over internet protocol mm -hmm. right now, mm -hmm. right? And 20 years ago, voice over internet protocol was a big deal. The telecom companies did not want 
voice over internet protocol because they really liked the fact that if I wanted to call you in Hong Kong, I had to pay $3 a minute to have a chat and, you know, voice over IP, it's free. So they didn't like that. But today it's invisible. We use it every day. No problem. Value over internet protocol, way bigger, way more important than voice over internet protocol. But it disrupts even more powerful people, mm -hmm. the banks. The banks do not want value over internet protocol. They do not want a future where in the old days, right? You and I want to uh, exchange value. I have a bank account. You have a bank account. I want to send you some money. I send it using a wire. Now, here's the problem. Because it crosses international borders, the Rothschilds, in their infinite wisdom, wrote a treaty a couple hundred years ago that says they, through two banks that they own a big piece of, have to get paid. Every dollar that crosses international borders, they get paid. Good deal. So, you know, you might get 70 cents on the dollar if I sent it Western Union. You might get, you know, 90 cents on the dollar if I sent it through a bank, you know, swift transfer. So, but there's friction. Now, that's the old days. If I sent you a Bitcoin, it could go for free. But you have to have a Bitcoin account. I have to have Bitcoin, yeah. you know, wallet. Right now, the and transaction you have have fees, you, it's not free. <laughs> that's the problem. Yeah. That's the problem right there. But that is the problem, isn't it? I mean, so it's either a store of value, which, um, you know, obviously that's the play. Uh, you know, a lot of hedge fund activity crowding your space, Mark. Uh, you know, they, yeah. they are coming in. They're not thinking about how do I transact with this? That You know, that's, right. that's, another, that's another conversation. Bitcoin is a store of value uh, as an inflation hedge, as a trade fi hedge, you know, how, how are you having these conversations right now? Are, wh how do you regard just this flood that we're seeing from hedge funds' interest into this space? Yep. Well, again, it, it, it really has to do with this secular and, and cyclical dynamic in that the, the really smart funds and the really smart legendary investors, the Paul Tudor Jones, the Stan Druckenmillers, Millers, right, they've said, I'm going to put two, three, four percent of my wealth into Bitcoin as the store of value to protect some portion of my wealth from the ravages of the fiat fiasco, where global central banks are going to print money at will to devalue the currency to get out of the big debt problem they have. And, and so they're putting it in their hedge funds, they're putting it in their personal portfolios, and, and that trend is, is not going to change. Now, there are also hedge funds that have been trading Bitcoin, and it's a beautiful trading instrument, partly because it's still controlled by humans instead of the machines. So the spreads are still wide. You still have exchange differentials. So there are a lot of ARBs out there, Susquehanna, Jump Trading, uh, and others that, that really make huge profits trading and, and providing liquidity into the market. And so there's all different use cases for the tool. Uh, to your point, I, I don't think many of them are thinking about how can I use it as a medium of exchange. And I actually don't think Bitcoin is a good medium of exchange. I think the Bitcoin blockchain is a tremendous rail for doing medium exchange, like the Strike app, of which we you know we're investors in, in Jack's company. And I can you know take dollars and send them and convert them into any app currency in the world instantaneously across the Bitcoin blockchain for free over the Lightning Network. In fact, I'm even wearing my Lightning Network socks today. Um, 
But uh, I'll spare people climbing up on the desk to show everybody. But uh, it it is interesting in that in the short run, when prices fall, as, as they have in the last few weeks, um, people start to get a little antsy and people start to question these long-term trends and these long-term fundamentals. And, you know, I was on CNBC a number of years ago. I remember the exact date, but the price had fallen from 10000 like literally before I went on eight on air to eight thousand. By the time it got to my segment, and uh, it's funny they call them blocks, just like blockchain. They call them blocks. By the time we got to my block, and and I remember Melissa, you know, Sarah, very nicely says, you know, what, what should we do? You know, it just it just fell. I said, just buy it. And there was like this this look of incredulity, like, what do you mean buy it? It's going down. I'm like, no, no, you should buy it today. And buy it tomorrow and next week and the weekend. Don't buy it all at once. You know, dollar cost averaging over time. And, and I say the same thing today is what matters is that any of us own a piece of the most valuable computing network that the world has ever seen. The Bitcoin blockchain is the most powerful computing system the world has ever seen. And owning a piece of it is really important. The daily price, the minute by minute price is meaningless. Price is a liar. I stole that from John Burbank. You know, Picasso <laughs> said, good artists borrow, great artists steal. That's the most important thing, is not what is the price today or tomorrow or the next day. It's what was the value a year ago? What was the value two years ago, five years ago, eight years ago, 10 years ago? Is the value continuing to accrete up? Yes. Is the value likely to continue to accrete upwards? Yes. And one of the best measures, in fact, it's the model that has the very best correlation to the price of Bitcoin. So there are lots of models that people use. There's there's the parabolic, parabolic Metcalf's Law model. It's about 95% correlated. And it just says, as the number of people that have wallets increases, the price should follow a path. And it's followed the path about 95% of the time. Mm -hmm. There's the stock to flow model that everybody talks about and plan B created. And now everybody's all upset because he said it's going to be 100,000 mm -hmm. by the end of mm -hmm. November. And it's not. And that means the model's broken. I'm like, no, that just means price is a liar. The model is still accurate. It just means now the price is undervalued relative to the value. But the most accurate, that one's about 95, 96% correlated. The most highly correlated is actually the value of Bitcoin related to gold. How many ounces of gold does it take to buy a Bitcoin? That's 99% correlated. Why? Because gold is money. For 5,000 years, gold is money. It's the only money in the world. And money is something that exists in the absence of a liability. Everything else is not money. It's currency. Mm -hmm. And currency is backed by debt, government debt. And part of the problem with currencies is they eventually all fail. There have been 775 paper currencies in the history of the world. Three quarters of them no longer exist. The rest will eventually go away because governments left to their own accord become democratic, capitalist, cronyist, dictatorist, blow upish, and And that's the way it goes is they will overspend and all empires, whether it's the Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the British Empire, the American Empire, they all disappeared because they're profligate spending. Then the only way out is pay back your debt. Can't do that. Restructure it. Can't do that. No one will take the deal. Default on it. Can't do that because then you get kicked out of office. Or devalue it through debauching your currency. So that will happen. And so if you look at, say, U.S. stocks, new all-time, actually gold stocks, new all-time highs, right? 
That's because we denominate in a depreciating asset, the dollar. In gold, if I take the S&P 500 divided by gold, it's dead flat since 1996. Think about that. Mm. Dead flat since mm. 1996. Yet the ratio of how many ounces it takes in gold to buy a Bitcoin has gone from you know less than one to 20-something today. That continues to rise. That has a 99% predictive power. And so as gold, as a store of value, as monetary aggregates increase and gold stays constant, give us an estimate of where uh, Bitcoin prices are going to go. But at an increasing rate because of this global substitution effect of gold for for Bitcoin. I want to ask you about new fundamentals uh, from this perspective. You know, a few months ago, Bitcoin Exchange Reserve hit a three-year low, which means more people were withdrawing Bitcoins, taking them out of yep. the market. In other words, you know, the, we saw uh, globally a decreasing Bitcoin Exchange Reserve, and that's often associated yeah. to the rising number of what we in the industry call hodlers, you know, the long-term yep. players. Yep. That's a bullish move with bearish, hugely bullish, but with bearish characteristics. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's hugely bullish, right? Because if, if you wanted to sell your Bitcoin, most times you have to put it on an exchange. Now, in the old days, you know, you could put it on a stick and you could go meet somebody in the back alley and you could exchange paper notes for your stick and, you had wrench risk where someone clubbed you over the back of the head and stole your stick and didn't give you the money. So probably not the best way to sell your Bitcoin. Uh, still happens all over the world. People, you know, trade local Bitcoins in, in, you know, for, for real things. But the better way is to put your Bitcoin on exchange and facilitate that transition through CFI, right? We got TradFi, we got CFI, and then ultimately DeFi, uh, decentralized. But these centralized exchanges, I think provide a good resource for that exchange of, of value and, and broadening the, the ownership. But as people pull it back on chain, they're basically saying, I don't want to sell. Mm -hmm. I want to I want to hobble. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Now, that's true by and large, but it also could be taken, you know, there, there's some that say that that concentration is a bad thing, right? In order for Bitcoin to really be successful, you need to have broader ownership. And so we need more of it to be distributed to the masses as opposed to just a handful of people, you know, hodling and, and pumping up in the price. So I, I am, I am um, willing to admit that there have been a number of instances where whales and not mm -hmm. any individual whale, mm -hmm. but some whale uh, certainly has been guilty of uh, pump and dump, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's certainly been the case. And we can show lots of examples, usually when it was less of a robust market mm -hmm. back in kind of 2010, 11, again in 2013, again in 2017. And there are some that say, you know, all oh, those big parabolic moves up were really one or two big whales manipulating the price. Today, I think it's much, much harder. I think there's there's a there is a broader distribution of ownership. There's still some big whales out there, mm -hmm. um, but I I do think what's happening now is the number that I heard lately was fifty percent of bitcoins were owned less than twelve months, and the problem with those short term owners they tend not not all mm -hmm. of them but they tend 
to be people that follow basic human behavior. Human beings in investment do two things really, really well. We buy what we wish we would have bought and we sell what we're about to need. And you see it, JP Morgan has a study on this, right? If you look at JP Morgan data, 20 years, stocks made about 9%, bonds made about 5.5%. So if you just did a typical 60-40, you made you know, 7 8%, right? Oh, no, no, no. What'd the average individual make? Two. How's that possible? All you had to do is pick one or the other and hold it, and you did better. Or have a balance and rebalance, you did better. But no, humans buy, remember, that's guys. We, we buy what's moving, and then we sell what just went down just at the about time it's about to, to transition. So uh, unfortunately, when you get these parabolic moves like we saw in January, February, or again here uh, a couple months ago after the summer, it tends to attract people to buy at the wrong time not really understanding the relationship of price and value. And they're not looking at the underlying value of the network of the fundamentals. They're just looking at the price making highs. That, and, that's really, you know, I think when we talk about volatility, it's that speculative behavior is seeing this as an asset class, as a hedge fund play. You know, I need to make 10%, 15%, 20%, 10x my money. You know, it is kind of in this space that we really see that kind of volatility. We are also seeing it react much more to traditional finance events because I do think they're interconnected. There is a spillover effect. You know, we talk about decentralized. Well, it's centralized with the participant in the market. So if they're holding something mm -hmm. in equities, mm -hmm. they're also holding something in crypto. You know, this is the point of vulnerability right here. You know, it's the investor. Yeah. Um, and then there's the there's the the long vision, right? Of which I would. Put you in that corner um bullish uh in the long term uh you see obviously the the macro economic vulnerabilities of which we could talk about until we're blue in the face but what are the innovative um vision that and the innovative fundamentals that you see as underpinning your long-term bullish view Oh, yeah, great. So I think first and foremost is this innovation, right? And Eric Schmidt, I'm just stealing his line, right? Which is, again, Satoshi, he, she, they, whatever, what they created, Bitcoin, is awesome, right? It's awesome. But that's not the big innovation. The big innovation is to create a digitally scarce asset, a unique asset in the digital world. So what does that mean? Well, Go back to, you're not old enough as, as I am old, right? Record albums. And, uh, you know, we had record albums and then they went to MP3s. Now, if I wanted to lend you a song, I could make a copy and I would send you the copy and you listened to it and you were fine and I was fine. But the record industry was not fine. They, they wanted you to buy your own original. So they outlawed uh, Napster. Well, how did they do that? Well, in a centralized system, right, we, we lever the smartest brain by building a hierarchy and everybody supports that CEO at the top. So when there's a CEO and one home office and one server, if you want to stop it, what do you do? You arrest the CEO and blow up the server. So they arrest Sean Parker, blow up his server, end of Napster. Music industry's happy. Well, now in the digital age, if you want to listen to a song and I want to listen to a song, we both get a streaming service and we rent the digital unique asset. And the cool part of that is the innovation 
is the artists are actually getting paid. The writers are actually getting paid. That's pretty cool because we can code it all into the smart contracts. So creating an asset that's digitally scarce. So people had tried to create e-gold or e-money for a long time, right? Crypto Anarchist Manifesto was written in 1988. It laid out the whole plan for having digital money. But the problem was it was written by an anarchist and he sat up in the mountains by himself and nobody listened to him. So 20 years went by. Finally, Satoshi came along and said, hey, I have a solution. And it was better than, you know, e-gold and better than whatever the other one's called, eagle something. And the difference was this digital scarcity, that it was true digital scarcity. You couldn't copy it. Like if, if I could take my money, my paper money, and turn it into electrons and then make copies of them and send them around, then I'm committing fraud. But I can't do that with Bitcoin, right? If I want to send you a Bitcoin... The network, all the nodes say, yep, Mark has a Bitcoin. Two, he sent it to Angie. Three, she got it. Now Mark no longer has it. And that becomes part of an immutable permanent record. That is amazing. So you apply that to all kinds of things in the world. And we're about to go through an exponential growth period. You know, Real Vision talks about this. I talk about it. Raul talks about it. The exponential age. Uh, this is real. And the problem is, most people are really bad at math. Sorry, it's just true. Um, and we're really bad at, at high level math. So if I say two times two, everybody's like four. Yes. Although that reminds me of the great joke of, of the guy interviewing accountants. And he says, first person come in. What's two plus two? Four. Thank you very much. Second person comes in. What's two plus two? Four. Thank you very much. Third person comes in. What's two plus two? What number do you want it to be? You're higher. <laughs> And that's kind of how, you know, accounting goes these days. But two times two, everybody listening here would say four. If I say what's 17 times 23, I'll wait. That is the limit of human intelligence. The average person cannot do that in their head. They need a calculator. So if I say, how are you at nonlinear regression? Not very good. And here's the thing. Nonlinearity is the most powerful thing in the world. If I take... 20 linear steps across the office, I get to the other side. If I take 20 exponential steps, you and I get to high five twice. I go around the world twice. And I know you're not in Hong Kong today, but we still get to high five because big. And so I use paper folding, right? Fold a piece of paper, mm -hmm. fold it again, fold it again. When you get to seven folds, you're done. Can't fold it again. Human being cannot actually physically fold a piece of paper eight times. If you could fold it 20 times, it's as tall as a house. If you could fold it 30 times, it's to the outer reach of the atmosphere. If you could fold it 50 times, which is not a lot, 50, 50 doublings, it's to the sun. And 100 is the known universe. So exponential growth is really, really big. And so what's happening here is we're going to go through a period where these innovations around digital scarcity are going to apply to everything. Every stock, every bot, every currency, every commodity, every piece of art, every piece of real estate, every private business, every everything, all $700 trillion of assets in the world are going to be tokenized, digitized, and they're going to trade in this tokenized form. And NFTs, right? And Oh, there's just, you know, funky JPEGs. No, 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 no. Everything will be an NFT. Your identity, my identity, my marriage license, my driver's license, everything that I own, every piece of title, Every piece of art, on the, it'll all be an NFT. 
I don't like the term NFT. I want it to be called digital property rights, DPRs, but you know, we'll see what that happens. But everything will be digital property rights. So as that happens, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency projects and other digital asset projects will become increasingly more important. And look, I think Bitcoin is unique in that it's a store of value, it's digital gold. It's never, I don't think, going to be a payment mechanism because in computing, you can be fast or secure, never both, right? Visa, very fast, not very secure. How many times you had to get a new Visa number because someone stole your card? Yes, it happens. Bitcoin, been up 13 years, not one fraudulent transaction, not one. How is that impossible? A lot of people have tried to hack in, not one fraudulent transaction. So most secure in the world, but it's not very fast. But we can do layer two on top of it and then layer three on top of that. I mean, Visa is really a layer two on top of the money mm -hmm, system. Mm -hmm. So all of these innovations are going to drive incredible wealth creation. It's the greatest wealth creation opportunity I'll see in my lifetime. It's why I went from being an asset allocator and, and you know CIO to a venture capitalist. I spent all my time doing venture capital. I spent all my time investing in infrastructure around digital assets and liquid protocols themselves. Because here's the cool part. Internet, TCPIP, which you and I are using right now, couldn't actually explain how it works. I'm talking to a metal box and you are getting everything I say in real time, real time. in HD, which I have a face for radio, so you'd probably rather me be blank. But how is that possible? Yeah. And it's in little packets and then they get reassembled. I, I can't explain it, but it works. TCPIP. On top of that, FTP for files. HTTP for email, SMTP, no, SMTP for email, HTTP for websites, and www ties it all together. No one owns that. Mm -hmm. Created trillions of value for Zuckerberg and Apple and Facebook or now Meta, and don't own that. Tim Berners-Lee invented it. Vint Cerf invented it. He invented TCP/IP. Tim Berners-Lee invented www. They're not super rich this time. If you take all the big wins in crypto, Coinbase, Kraken, Gemini, BlockFi, all of them, they're $300 billion. The protocols are $3 trillion. Mm -hmm. That's where the value is getting captured. So owning the protocols, in addition to owning the equity of the assets, is critically important. And we're just getting started. Yeah. I used to say, yeah, we're in the first or second inning. And then someone said, oh, Mark, come on. The players just entered the stadium. We haven't even <laughs> sung the national anthem. <laughs> well, and the, the cool thing is it's it's decentralized so anybody can have a piece of that protocol. There are DAOs. You could be part of the, the governance, if you will, the, the trajectory of whatever protocol that you choose to participate in a meaningful way. I have a question for you, Mark. Uh, maybe this is posed differently. Everybody asks you about your very famous prediction, 250000 for yep. Bitcoin in five years. Okay, that's not my question. My question is, if I were to give you $60,000 today, would you yep. buy Bitcoin? And if not, why not? If not, what would you buy? So there you go. Awesome. All right. So uh, 250K in five years, easy. And, and 500K beyond that in a decade, easy. And those two numbers are simply monetary value of gold. $5 trillion. So that's a 5X from here. And then total value of gold, which includes you know jewelry and coinage, uh, $10 trillion. Those are easy. Uh, Murray Stahl 
makes me look bearish because he's like, oh, forget that, Mark. We're going total global monetary aggregates, 86 trillion. And that's, you know, well over, you know, $10 million of Bitcoin. So that's, that's awesome. And, and I actually can't argue with him. It's pretty cool. But if I, if you gave me 60K, you said, that's all the money I'm going to give you. And it's interesting because we're raising our third venture fund and we put 30% of it in liquid protocols. In our first fund, we bought Bitcoin, which we thought was a series B in 2018. Ethereum, which we thought was a series A. Uh, we did a little Solana through Kyle Samani and a little bit of the graph. All done great. Fund two, two years later, we made a mistake. Uh, we put it all in Bitcoin and we should have done more DeFi and we should have done some of the other things, but, but you know, we all make mistakes. So now I'm in fund three. Now I got a pot of cash and we can choose what do we want to own. So to your point, you give me 60K. I certainly would buy some Bitcoin and I would tuck it away in a drawer and it would be my core. I talk about, in, in liquid protocols, I talk about the base, mm -hmm. right? There's Bitcoin, there's Avalanche, there's Solana and Ethereum. Why is that the base? Well, Bitcoin, I think, is the base layer. It's literally like TCP IP. Then you have Filecoin, which is kind of like the equivalent of FTP. Mm -hmm. Then you got Ethereum, which is the WW dot. Okay. And then Avalanche and Solana are competing for, and as well as Cosmos and, and uh, Polkadot, are competing for that SMTP HTTP layer. So to me, they are the base layers of the, the trust net, as I call it. So we had, you know, mainframe computers, 54, 68, the microchip, 82, the personal computer, 96, the internet, 2010, the mobile net, 2024, uh, the trust net, as I call it. So that's, those are the base layers of the trust net. Beyond that, I invest in DAOs. I would, I would buy some, some DAOs. I think DAOs are gonna change everything. They will be the only method of ownership going forward because they're just a better form of ownership. Uh, and there are a lot of interesting projects there. Uh, the metaverse is a monster opportunity. I love Axie Infinity, for example. I mean, Axie Infinity is changing the world. Mm -hmm. Mark, you're mm -hmm. ridiculous. No, it's not changing. It's a game. No, not a game. It is a micro economy. It is the first metaverse economy. Well, actually, Roblox probably is. And actually, before that, World of Warcraft probably was. But that aside, Axie Infinity, uh, you can buy the token. Um, and actually by Roblox stock, but these are real micro economies and they are amazing. And so play to earn is a massive opportunity. So there's probably some things I would pick up along the way. Um, but at the core, everyone needs to own Bitcoin. How much? I mean, I don't mean everyone, right? My hashtag get off zero. You can't have zero. You have to have some. So I used to say one to 3%. It's probably light. It's probably three to 5% for everyone. The younger you are, the higher that is. So if you're, you know, like me in your fifties, uh, you should have three, 5%. If you're in your thirties or forties, maybe that's eight to 10%. If you're in your twenties, I can make an argument for having a lot because I, I think long-term, I don't know that there's any asset that I'm as confident will have as higher return. I think there are other projects that will have higher returns, but the outcomes might, you know, I can't tell you which ones. Like it's possible something could come along and replace Axie Infinity. I don't think that'll happen. It's possible something could come along and bump one of the other uh, projects. Um, 
but I'm I'm comfortable that Bitcoin is is that 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 absolute base layer. And then I, I do like Ethereum um, because it's got a very large installed developer base. However, it's not as fast as Solana. Problem with Solana, it's not perfectly accurate. So for gaming, awesome. Accounting, less awesome. Um, Polkadot and Cosmos are interesting. There'll probably be a couple other projects that that come up. But I th- it's the interesting thing about investing, and and it's counterintuitive to what what we're taught uh, about investing, right? We all study capital asset pricing model and diversification. Well, that's once you're rich, right? If you're already rich, yes, diversification and stocks mm-hmm. and bonds and some crypto and mm-hmm. some venture capital. But getting rich is different. And when you're young, that's the whole idea. And so every great pool of capital in the world that I'm aware of came from concentration. Concentrated business ownership, concentrated stock position, concentrated real estate position, all of it. Now, how do you create a small fortune? Start with a large fortune and stay concentrated. So you can't overstay your welcome and it can go the other way. So once you get concentrated and do well in a project you believe in, a project you have expertise in, then I think you should diversify as, again, as you get older. But um, again, that's a meandering answer to, I wouldn't just own Bitcoin. And as great as I think, look, I think Bitcoin is a 10x from here, easy, like easy, easy, with very low probability that doesn't happen. I mean, your answer, look, your answer reveals opportunity cost of either accepting that 10x is it's not bad okay uh in the traditional equity markets if you make that play and if you make that bet that's a great bet um but it also shows your answer also shows the opportunities that are in the space which are astronomical uh which is why we're talking yeah. um I, there is a risk you know we often talk about strength weakness opportunity threat what is yes. that threat in your mind so, I mean, let's break them down. There's, there's lots, right? There's, there's the age-old technological threat. You know, something will be invented that's better. Yes and no. Um, it will. But the difference is we now live in an open source world. So unlike MySpace getting beat by Facebook because it was better, if somebody comes out with something better than Bitcoin, like Taproot or Segwit, you just copy paste and now you're just as good. So the open source world changed that, that technology risk. So I don't think the technology risk there, Paul Romer's right. Paul Romer won the Nobel Prize three years ago for the law of increasing returns. It's not the best technology that wins. It's the technology that gets critical mass first. And, and so I'm comfortable with Bitcoin there. I'm comfortable with Ethereum mostly. There are some risks with Ethereum. Um, and it's like I like I like that. That is part of the reason I like Avalanche and things like that. Um, but I'm so the tech risks I don't I don't really worry about. Regulatory risks, yep. governments bans and things like that. Yeah. Eh, yes and no. Again, every technology that became disruptive in history has been fought with regulation. Every single one, right? When the horseless carriage was invented, the horse and buggy companies actually got a law passed. This is crazy that you actually had to have someone walk in front of the horseless carriage with a red flag, waving it. So it wouldn't, you know, kill a horse and and buggy. 
Okay. So they tried to slow it down. Well, today, no one drives. Well, there are a few horse and buggies in New York City, but that's about it. So um, when my father, grandfather-in-law left the safe job at the train company to go work for the upstart American Airlines in 1938, his parents were horrified. I mean, why would you leave this safe company for this you know, crazy company? And the train companies passed out pamphlets saying, if you got on an airplane, you would die because your body would cave in on itself when you went faster than a certain yeah. speed. Okay. So FUD, and they tried to pass regulations that limited how far you could take a plane and all this kind of stuff. So regulations will always be used, but at the end of the day, true innovation prevails. I ask people all the time, name me one great innovation, true innovation that once it got critical mass, you could put it back in the bottle. Stop it through regulation. I mean, cable TV. The networks did not want cable TV. We got cable TV. Cable TV didn't want streaming. We got streaming. You know, net neutrality, all this. I mean, they tried really hard to stop it through regulation. The banks are going to try really hard to stop this image. Because here's the thing. What the internet did, and I go all the way back. If you go back into the medieval times, the church had a monopoly on information. So the church gave us our views once a week from the pulpit. You had no access to information, couldn't read, couldn't write. Okay. They gave you what to think, how to feel, how to live your life. Printing press busted that monopoly wide open. Now, people still didn't read, but you could now print a book and you could read stories to each other and you could pass the knowledge on and it busted the, the monopoly. So then the government seized it and they told us what to think through state-owned media and you know, not state-owned, like three networks in the US, still kind of state-owned. And then the internet broke that media. I say, I use the example, if I want to know what's happening in the Argentinian election, I do not wait for a reporter to get on a plane to, sell, to, um, Don't need to. Uh, Buenos Aires yep. and write a story, send it back to her editor in New York and have him give it to the senior editor and have her publish it two days later. I go on Twitter and watch a Periscope and watch them chant Macri's name and say, that dude's going to win. So it made information bi-directional. Yeah. Okay. And that disrupted all of media and all of commerce. Pretty big businesses. But people fought it. Regulation tried. They fought it. Now, what um, Bitcoin or blockchain does is it makes value bidirectional and it disrupts financial services. Financial services is way bigger than media and commerce. Equity market big, bond market bigger, currency market bigger, derivatives market monster. And it's all going to get disrupted. So the banks are going to fight. And I tweeted this out a couple weeks ago. I said, look, 2009, 2015, and this is not a Gandhi quote, I guess. It's somebody else. And I can't remember his name, but... It gets attributed to Gandhi. You know, first they ignore you. 2009 to 15, crazy people doing Bitcoin, whatever. 15 to 21, then they laugh at you. Oh, look at those stupid kids playing with their stupid magic internet money. Then they fight you. 2021 to 2026, they're going to fight us. And they're going to fight hard. But then you win. Because they're going to lose. But it doesn't mean they're not going to fight. So that is the, it doesn't keep me up at night. But it does mean we have to be prudent about cyclicality. It means we have to be prudent about putting all our eggs in one basket in the short run. Maybe be a little more diversified. So, and then you know, the last one is uh, the other FUD, right? The energy FUD, dumb. Um, proof of work is a beautiful system. Uh, everything in our life is about turning energy into value. All of it. 
right? You and I right now, we're converting energy to value. We fueled our bodies. We're having a discussion. We're trying to create value. That is converting energy to value. That's mm -hmm. what digital assets are. They're converting energy to value. And they do it much more efficiently than mining gold, way less efficient than Bitcoin. Uh, banking industry, way less efficient. I, like to, I, I will drive by an empty bank branch on my way home today for, to my house. No one will be in it. Not one person. No one ever goes in it. Why do they still have it? It's just dumb. It doesn't make me feel better that they have bricks and mortar. It's just dumb. I don't need a brick and mortar bank to bank. I can be my own bank now. So all of that says that um, the risks are real, mm -hmm. but they don't matter long run. They matter short run because that will increase volatility. But remember, volatility, no, I don't have it. I usually have my Embrace Volatility shirt. Volatility is your friend. The thing you want as an investor is a high volatile asset, okay? Mm -hmm. Highly volatile asset with low correlation to other assets. That's what you want to own, lots of them. And the more volatile, the better. And I use my Amazon example. People have heard it. They're tired of it. Amazon, been a public company 24 years, okay? It has had a double-digit drawdown every single year, including this year. The average drawdown is 31%. Okay, you can check all these numbers out. Five times more than 50%, twice more than 90%. When was the rest, right time to sell Amazon? That would be never. Never. Who owned Amazon since the beginning of time? Jeff, his mom, his dad, and his ex-wife. I learned the fifth person this weekend at Real Vision, Bill Miller. Bill Miller actually has owned it since IPO and never sold. So there are five people in the world. Everyone else got shaken up by the volatility. Here's the cool thing. Amazon is compounded 113% for 24 years with 80 vol. Bitcoin is compounded 212% for 13 years with 80 vol. It's kind of cool. You have eyes and ears in Asia, presumably through forecasts, but also you have uh, some boots on the ground in Shanghai. What are you hearing? Yep. What are you excited about in China, in Asia? Look, I well, I'm most excited about, about growth equity. In China, I mean, we have a growth equity team. I met with this this uh, group the other day. They're they're based in China, and you know, their their last two investments are so boring yet so beautiful. Like I want to put so much money in them. One's called Fat Bear, right? It's basically the Home Depot of China. And yeah, you know, I, I used to use the example that um, there's a company Cisco S Y S C O mm -hmm. in the U S. They deliver all the food to restaurants. Yes. yes. And uh, you probably ate some of their food. I probably did today. Um, it's a big company. But China's never going to let Cisco in China. So we had a chance to invest in the Cisco of China. And, and look, I'm known for hyperbole. I'm known for you know saying things too forcefully. And my wife says frequently wrong, never in doubt. I'm like, occasionally wrong, never in doubt. Okay. I am certain, 100% certain, that people in China are going to eat out more in the future. I'm 100% certain. So owning the company that delivers food to those people, make money. Fat Bear, same thing. I am certain that as the 700 million people that entered the middle class over the last 30 years move up, they're going to buy homes and renovate their homes. Full stop. And buying Home Depot 30 years ago in the United States was a really, really good investment. So you should, you should buy that. So growth equity is what I'm most excited about. Mm -hmm. Partly because... China is run by geniuses. 
And everyone's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? They're, they're criminals and they're, they're bad people. I'm like, no, they're, they're geniuses. They think long-term. They have 30-year plans. We don't even think like 30 weeks in the United States, you know, let alone 30 years. And I always use the example of quarterly, that China's playing Quarterly go. reports. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quarterly reports. But China's playing Go, we're arguing how to set up the checkerboard. And the 30-year plan from 1990 to 2020 was a harmonious rise. I love that. So non-threatening, so beautiful. Let's move people out of abject poverty into the middle class. Harmonious rise. The new 30-year plan is global superpower. That has a little different connotations. And and they're going to get there. And so why did they ban Bitcoin? Simple. Okay. Alibaba set up a uh, money market account on Alipay five, six years ago. $90 billion left the banking system, went into this money market. And they said, oh, that's bad. Our banking system is pretty over leveraged. So you can't do that. Change the rules. No more. Ant Financial is like, all right, we'll just change the legal structure and we'll, we'll reopen it. Okay, you don't get to go public. You're done. So same thing here. They said, all right, well, if we can't put it in in Alipay, we'll just put it in crypto. Whoa, wait a second. We need the money in the banking system, so you can't put it in crypto. So we're going to ban it. Why? Well, because we want a CBDC. And the renminbi, the digital renminbi is going to, it already exists, but it's going to be a big thing. I believe I have this number right. There are already today more holders of digital renminbi than Bitcoin. And within a year, there will be a billion owners of the digital renminbi, CBDC. It's a surveillance tool. It allows you to control the money supply very directly. You can program money, which is a little dystopian. I mean, imagine this. Imagine you get your paycheck, but you happen to jaywalk that morning and Mm -hmm. you only get 98 cents on the dollar. Or what if they say, you know what? We really need you to buy Chinese cars. So unless you spend the money by next week on a Chinese car, it goes down by 10%. How is that any different from what Federal Reserve does with monetary policy at the moment? Oh, exactly. Well, the only difference is it's very direct, right? Mm -hmm. By by saying, if you don't spend your money, we're going to inflate it away and make it worth less. Mm -hmm. Completely the same. But be able Mm -hmm. to say... You have to do this. Like mm-hmm. these four places are legal and a social kind of credit, social score. That's a little more dystopian. Again, it's genius mm-hmm. and it will work in terms of command and control and growth. And, and here's the thing. But it's, I actually to, yeah. don't think it's sinister. I think it's all designed to take this 700 million people, 300 million of which are millennials, right? Twice as many as in the United States. And no, 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 I'm sorry, five times is, no, four times, do my math, Mark. There's 80 million in the U.S. and 320 million, four times more than the United, in the United States. And these people are going to accumulate wealth and they're going to migrate from a manufacturing economy to a consumer economy. And so having control of that monetary system is, is really in their best interest. So I don't think it's, as dystopian. The people I worry about are the Europeans and the Japanese and the Americans that have a much more difficult problem. We don't have any young people. You know, we have mostly old people. And 
while the echo boomers will eventually get there, it's still only going to replace the, the baby boomers and not have a, a bigger number. So all that comes back to um, this idea that I think China is exciting in a lot of areas, but it's hard for other people to invest there because if you read the Western press, you're going to think it's not such a great place. It, that's right, which means the diversity of, of coverage is really super important. But also, yeah. to your point, it really shows that there is an underpinning to something else, another system that um, is coexisting right now. And to your point of regulators coming in and trying to bigfoot, this is, I think, the stage in which we're right now. I don't know who the winner is, uh, and I'm rooting right. for the little guy. That's what I know. Last question, forecast, forecast. This is uh, at the end of the year, you know, as you reflect on the year that was, what was the key yep. development in your mind in 2021? Something that you think, whoa, this really sets us up for your prediction in 2022. So let's start there. What was this, the critical event in your opinion in 2021? Uh, again, really, Really fantastic question. Um, you know, it's easy for 2020 because it was the the lockdowns in response to the to the pandemic. Uh, a little more subtle this time in that uh, I think it's the um, knock on effects that were revealed from the lockdown. Right? I, I think the lockdowns were one of the dumb. I think they will go down in history as one of the dumbest things that you know, governments globally have, have ever done. I mean, there were some bad ones, the inquisitions, and that was probably worse. Uh, and probably a few things in the past that were probably worse. But but this is going to go right right up there in terms of, of really dumb decisions. Um, you know, look, we've had skyrocketing suicides, massive increase in drug overdose deaths, people who have died because they were afraid to go to the hospital. I mean, terrible human tragedy because of bad policy based on bad data. That Imperial College study was a travesty and the fact that people reacted to it and made decisions on it, heinous. So I think now what we saw was that the supply chain disruptions were deeper than people thought. The impact on growth was deeper than people thought. And therefore the need for government stimulus was gonna be higher than people anticipated. But I think the development was, despite the jawboning that you know these central banks were going to keep printing money at the same rate as they did in 2020, that rate has now been falling, particularly on a global basis. There's actually countries around the world that are tightening, which doesn't make any sense given that we're seeing a slowdown everywhere. But I think that development, it, there's a great chart, uh, the China credit impulse. Uh, and it basically has an 18-month kind of lead on global economic activity. And I was a high school wrestler, and, and my coach used to say, you know, if you want your opponent to do something, just move their head that direction. Because where the head goes, the body follows. Because there's no way, you know, if you move your head this way, the rest of your body's coming with it. There's no way to stop it. And if you look at that chart, you know, it collapsed 12 months ago, and it's shown no signs of letting up. The U.S. bank lending chart just collapsed. And those two 
declines in global liquidity. And there's a great firm called Cross Border Capital that tracks this as well. And all their global liquidity monitors are collapsing. And so where that head goes, the body's going to follow. And I think next year is going to be a very, very challenging year economically. I think earnings are going to plummet. I think this move toward nationalism and populism is, again, stupid. We need globalism. Adam Smith was right. Comparative advantage works. And uh, there is a there is it's an interesting little sinister kind of side school of thought that a lot of this policy response was actually engineered in China to slow down the competition, to let them kind of uh, insource like chip manufacturing and all the things that they need. Because here's the thing, 10 years ago, the United States and China had to make one big decision because mm -hmm. they're the two you know, kind of superpowers. And they had to make a decision. What do I want to be really great at? And we chose to be really great at social media. And we are awesome at Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snap. We're awesome. China decided to be really good at 5G and AI. Like 96% of AI citations are in China today. So those technologies, I believe, are more important. And the reason this is so important is for basically the last, you know, kind of 700 years, the global superpower was determined by world reserve currency status. And that was determined by naval superiority. So in the olden days, in the 1400s, it was Portugal because they had the tallest trees. Therefore, they had the fastest ships. Spain takes them over. They get the trees. France takes them over. And then the Netherlands. And then the British got the steamship. And then we got nuclear power. So we're at the top of the apex predator food chain. But here's the thing. China figured out, I believe, 10 years ago, that the next war will not be fought with ships. It'll be fought with chips. And everything in the world revolves around chip superiority and the metaverse and all these things coalescing where our physical and digital lives come together. We're not going to have another hot war. We're at war right now, but it's a war over chip control and supply and assets and digital assets. And as I said, I think, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, I guess it's unfortunate since I'm an American and I'm not Chinese, but... I think they're kind of in the in the lead. And I think our leadership is bad. I think their leadership, and this is not a judgment of their ethical character. Leadership skills. Chinese leadership skills, I think, are way better than American leadership skills today. And, and a lot of countries around the world. And I think they're just executing better. And so I'm not sure you're right answering your question, but it's a wake-up call 2022, and crypto has a role to play, there's no doubt. Mark Yusko, Morgan Creek Digital, thank you so much. This was more than an illuminating conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me. And I love the fact that we color coordinated for the Christmas colors here with uh, the red and the green. So <laughs> lots of fun. We'll do it again sometime in the new year. Absolutely. 2022, it's a date. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this latest episode of Word on the Block. I'm Minji Lau, Editor-in-Chief of Forecast News. Until the next time. Thank <laughs> you.